0: The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. You guys can go ahead and open your copies of Scripture. Open them up to Amos chapter 4. We are... Going to be trucking along in Amos over the next couple of Sundays. We'll hit pause on one of those last Sundays there in December to specifically focus from the scriptures on on Advent. Until then, we're going to keep keep working our way through through the book of Amos. Why don't you go ahead and stand to your feet? We're going to read Amos chapter four this morning. We're going to do this um, not because there's anything magical in standing to our feet, but it is a way to honor the Lord with our bodies. What we want to do is give honor to where honor is due. He is the sovereign king, and we can rise in honor of him as we seek to submit our hearts humbly before him and humbly beneath his word. So if you remember, the book of Amos is sort of like a compilation of many sermons, All right, and Amos chapter 4 is another sermon that Amos would have been preaching to the people of God who needed to hear the word of God. And so you're going to hear him open with that very language. Amos chapter 4, verse 1. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks, and you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into harmon, declares the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew. Your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locust devoured, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you. As when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel." For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Well, the key for you, if you are of the Bible-underlining, Bible-circling kind, is right there in verse 12, and it is that admonition for God's people to prepare to meet your God. And since that is the case, that is our sermon title this morning, Prepare to Meet Your God. The main idea, I believe, Amos wants to give to us and he wants us to receive as hearers of his word is this main idea that God is going to confront his people with the sin of self-centeredness he's going to confront his people with the sin of self-centeredness and the way this sin of self-centeredness has spun out into all kinds of failures on the part of God's people So, I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to ask that the Holy Spirit would empower the preaching of His word. And then we're going to dive into this sermon from our brother Amos and hear what this prophet of God has to say to us today. So, let's pray. Holy Spirit, we're asking that you would move in power, we're asking you to move in might, we're asking you to do what you love to do, which is to put the spotlight squarely on the Lord Jesus Christ to magnify and to exalt him. So I'm asking that you would fill me, empower me, assist me to proclaim the glories of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, the holiness he desires of his people, and that you would pierce our hearts, lay us open to the very marrow and the the very bone of our hearts so that we would walk away today not the same people. Oh, God, move among our hearts today. Assist us to hear the message of Amos chapter 4 in regards to the sin of self-centeredness that can grip the heart of God's people. God, change us. For your namesake and for your glory, change us. It's in the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. There was an old Dutch poet who once wrote this little line. People are self-centered to a nauseous degree. They will keep on talking about themselves while I'm explaining me. If we were honest, most of us would have to agree that there's a little bit too much of us inside that little phrase right there there is more self-centeredness that grips our hearts than we would care to admit yet there are few traits any more ungodly than this idea of being self-centered but as we will see in amos chapter 4 it is this sin of self-centeredness which had gripped the very soul of god's people Because they had rejected God's word, as we saw back in Amos chapter 2, and because they had ultimately rejected the God of the word, he told us in Amos chapter 2 that they began to run after lies. They began to run after idols. And now in Amos chapter 4, he's going to narrow the scope of what he means by that By telling them that the idol that they had begun to run after is the idol of self. They have turned into self worshipers because of their self-centered hearts. Amos is going to make clear that the idol of self had become the God replacement that was now at the center of their worship. Again, when it comes to this idea of worship, we've said it several times now, None of us are neutral in regard to the ways that we worship. It's not like sometimes I'm worshiping God and sometimes I shift into neutral and I'm worshiping nothing. We are always tilted in some way towards the worship of something. It's either going to be God or it's going to be something that is a God replacement, something lesser than God. Either we will be worshipers of the Creator As a result of being those who have received his extravagant saving grace or we will be worshipers of creation as neglecters of his grace. And what had become outwardly apparent, no longer was the sin of self-centeredness just something hidden in the dark corners of the hearts of God's people. The sin of self-centeredness had now moved out into the forms and the practices and the ebbs and the flows of people's lives. And what had become outwardly apparent in Amos's day was that the people of God fall into the latter category. Because the sin of self-centeredness, listen, because the sin of self-centeredness is ultimately self-worship, what you find is that they had become worshipers of creation. You see, so often what we tend to do is go, well, I'm not guilty of an idol worship. I don't got a little stick of wood laying in the corner that I bow down to. I'm not guilty of being an idol worshiper because I'm worshiping some piece of creation. But what we tend to neglect and what we tend to fail to see is that when we set ourselves at the center of our lives, we have become self-worshippers. And to worship something other than the living God is to be an idol worshiper. We are guilty of the sin of idolatry when we run after self-centeredness. And therefore, because these things were true of God's people then and can be true of God's people today, what Amos is saying there in verse 12 is people of God. You are not prepared to meet your God. You're not because you are running after all the things that are not of God. So with hearts curved in on themselves, God's people were self-centered, thus self-serving, right? When you set yourselves at the center and expect everyone else to orbit around the gravity of you, you're going to easily adopt the mindset that you exist to serve me. And that's exactly what made God's people guilty of a multitude of failures. Listen, friends, brothers and sisters, listen. The question really does come down to this. And that's a question I want us to wrestle with this morning. It's the question I want you to wrestle with this Advent season. It's the question I want us to wrestle with day in and day out as we walk as men and women who've been saved by grace. And the question is this, does God care about half-hearted worship? Does God care about half-hearted worship Does he care about our self-centered hearts? Does he care when his people fail to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him? Does God really care about these things? Or is a half-hearted worship, self-centered heart, do these things fall into the category of, eh, does God really care? I don't think he does. It's really no big deal to God. You know, a little 60-40 split where about 60% of the time our lives are given over into things that would constitute worship of God. 40% of the time, yeah, it, i got to admit, it's tilted a little bit towards me. I'm trying to advance me. I'm trying, trying to play the game of seeing me rise. I want my name, me, myself, and I to be advanced. Hey, at least God's getting 60. I'm getting 40. It's not a 50-50 split. Some of us might be like, I'm a little bit more mature. He's at least getting 70, and I'm getting a little bit of 30. Or does the Bible tell us that we should not settle for that because God is after the whole heart? Not a half heart, but a whole heart. That mercy loving, that grace embracing, that God glorifying, that Christ Abiding That spirit-empowered heart that is 100% full tilt, ruthless in an abandonment and pursuit of the living God because it's the living God that has saved me as sinner by his grace. What kind of heart is God after? With the exposing words of a prophet driven by love, Amos called Israel then just as he calls the church today to prepare to meet your God by examining our worshiping hearts. So to help God's people do this very thing, Amos confronts Israel with a string of failures here in chapter 4. Failures that were born from the sin of self-centeredness. And the first one we see is in verses 1 through 3, and it was this. It was a failure to care. A failure to care. A failure to care for others. A failure to use the privilege of responsibility and blessings that had been given. Specifically, he's going to address the women of Israelite society. And if you think, well, that's just sort of God being chauvinistic and sexist, just hold your breath because in Amos chapter 6, he's going to turn and put the full force of the pressure onto the men of society. All right? Failure to care. Look at what Amos says there starting in verse 1. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, that's why we're saying it's wives here, they looked and say to their husbands, you need to do whatever you need to do in order that you get more drink into the house because we need another bottle, we need another sip of booze. So diving right into the issue at hand, Amos calls for God's people to hear this word. That's how he begins his sermon in Amos 3. That's how he begins his sermon here in Amos 4. That's how he's going to begin his sermon in Amos chapter 5. Hear this word. What he knows is that the failure to listen to God's word is the spring from which all other failures flow. So have you ever looked around in your life and said, man, there just seems to be Areas of my life that are not firing in all cylinders, there's a really, really, really good chance that that is an area of your life that is not in submission to the word, where you're hearing from God and what God is asking for of you in this area of life. Is it the case across the board all the time? No, but there's a really, really decent chance that this is true. Amos knows this. That's why he's saying, hear this word, As God's prophet, Amos is committed to telling God's people what they need to hear, not what they want to hear. And so Amos opens with the equivalent of a verbal slap in the face as he looks to the aristocratic women of the day and calls them, you cows of Bashan. Now, this sounds like a rude way of speaking. It sounds like Amos is reverting to childish name-calling. But what you need to understand is that is not the case. Amos was merely emphasizing the selfish, ungodly personality of these wealthy women. And you can understand this when you understand that in the nation of Israel, there was an area known as Bashan. And Bashan was famous for its lush pasture lands, it was famous for its fine livestock. And like the cattle of that region, which were fat and well-fed and pampered and treated like pets, they were just coddled day in and day out because, after all, they were the cows of Bashan. They were there in those fine pasture lands. They were the finest of the livestock amongst the nation of Israel. What Amos is saying is that like the cattle of that region, these upper-class women were exactly the same. They were pampered. They were well-fed And it was this fat and sassy way of life that led them to be cruel. Led them to be indifferent to the poor and the needy around them. Driven by self-concern, they were happy to oppress those that did not have worldly resources. They were happy to oppress the poor. Driven by self-importance, we're more important than you because of who we are. They were happy to crush those who had nobody to make right the wrongs that were done against them. The needy. Amos goes so far as to say that in their spoiled arrogance, these women even treated their husbands as household slaves, lording over their spouse all so there would be drink in the house. It was hedonism at its finest. These women were being driven by the fleeting pursuits of pleasure and they didn't care who they mowed over in order to get whatever it was that they wanted to satisfy themselves. New clothes, new house, new car, newest tech, the finest of jewelry, houses, upgrades, more booze to fuel their luxurious lifestyle. They didn't care if they crushed the poor. They didn't care if they ran over the needy. They didn't care if they tried to wear the pants in the family, lord over their husbands, treating them with contempt to pull their husbands into their pursuit of the sin of self-centeredness. With pleasure-seeking at the center of life's pursuit, luxury at the expense of others, it just totally made sense. So whether it's an individual that is going to go down this path or whether it's a nation collectively that goes down this path, listen, when the main concerns in life are our own self-importance, we will rapidly disintegrate into a failure to care for others. Those, it's just, they're just related to one another. They're two sides of the same coin. The moment we say my main concern when I wake up and the hours that I'm awake till my head goes down on the pillow is me. When the main concerns in life are my own self-importance, what we will begin to do as individuals and then collectively as a nation is we will rapidly disintegrate into a failure to care for others. Why is it that there are particular industries in this country that are fueled by billions of dollars, the porn industry being one of them. Billions of dollars are funneled into that industry, which is all about self-serving, self-care, self-love. I want this. I want to see this. I want to partake in this. I will funnel money into this. And what has happened is with the concern of self-importance that fuels at least one little slice of our nation's economy... Notice that there is a rapid disintegration of a failure to care for others. The billions of dollars that are funneled into that industry alone could be put towards all kinds of things for the poor and the needy or whatever might have you. But we don't care because at the center of our worshiping lives is us. And I'm going to get what I want to get and I don't care who I run over and I will pump my money into that thing as long as I get served. It's that kind of mentality which had totally gripped the people of God and the nation of Israel at that time. We will create a situation, if this is our main concern, we will create a situation which is utterly self-centered where there is no pronoun but me and no number but one if the center of our lives is me. So in order to shine the light on how far they had strayed from God, Amos compares the unholy actions Of these women against the plumb line of a holy God there in verse 2. Do you see that there? The Lord God has sworn by his holiness. I encourage you to go and check it out. Very, very, very little does God ever swear in the Bible. Very rarely does he ever swear by his holiness. And for him to say, I am swearing by the holiness of me. I am swearing by the very essence of who I am. This will not be tolerated among My people. For the Lord God to swear by his holiness is for him to swear by the very essence of the quality that makes him other than everything else. The holiness of God is the perfect measure by which you and I and all people will be measured on that final day. Too many of us think we're going to skate into heaven because I am better than my neighbor and I'm better than my co worker. And I'm telling you, you're setting your bar way too low if the measure of your holiness is your neighbor across the street. The measure of holiness by which every one of us must be measured is the holiness of our God who created us. And this is what Amos is trying to draw the people's attention back to, the standard by which they are measuring. Are we doing right in the eyes of God? Are we doing wrong in the eyes of God? Had become an innovated standard that they built for themselves so they could justify their way of living. And now what Amos is doing is saying, No, wash yourselves of that standard. Reset your standard according to the Lord who is holy, holy holy therefore since these cows of bashan says amos never stop chewing the cud of self-indulgence they are going to be taken away like animals you see that there in the language at the end of verse two where amos talks about being taken away with hooks even the last of you with fish hooks much like a fish is hooked and drawn out of the lips of are out of the water by its lips so these women are going to be taken away with hooks and drawn out through the breaks in the walls of their cities some argue that this is just figurative language but you can actually go back and look at different stele's that are were written and made In the time of Assyria and what you will begin to find is that not only is this a possibility of being a figurative way of describing of how they're going to be treated animalistically because they were treating other humans like animals, but it's actually shown in history that in Assyria would come and conquer a city, what they would do is actually hook the lips of their captives, string them up and haul them out through the city off to another place, much like a fisherman Hooks his string to the lips of a fish, strings him up, slings him over his back, and hauls them home. And so, what you find is that Amos is probably a mixture of both, saying figuratively and literally, prophesying that this is what is going to happen to you. Friends, Amos is making clear this statement God's holiness has consequences for every area of life. God's holiness has consequences for every every area of your life. Your economic life, your recreational life, your thought life, your sex life, your married life, your relationship life, your work life, your online life, and beyond. God's holiness has consequences for every area of life. And ultimately, self-seeking and oppressive behavior will not prosper because Yahweh has sworn by His holiness that these things will not win the day. This, says Amos, is the word the Lord declares because the sin of self-centeredness has led his people in a failure to care. Point number one, failure to care. Notice that Amos now turns to address their failure of worship. That's verses 4 and 5. Failure of worship. Starting in verse 4, the focus switches to the religious life of God's people. So it was focused narrowly there on the self-centeredness that led to a failure to care among the people of God. Now he's saying let's take a little gander at the religious life of the people of God. But instead of finding commendation for the religious life, what the people of God find is the bite of condemnation. Come to Bethel, he says there in verse 4, and transgress to Gilgal and multiply transgressions. Yes, bring your sacrifices every morning, bring your tithes every three days, bring an offering of a of sacrifice, thanksgiving, that which is leavened. Yes, bring, proclaim your free will offering, publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. Now, you might ask the question, why? I mean, It sounds like, according to verses 4 and 5, they are very religious people. And the answer is, yes, your intuition is right right there. So the question is, why are they not finding commendation for their religious pursuit of God, and instead are met with condemnation. Why is that the case? The reason why is because the people of Israel had a worship that was a complete, total, and utter sham. It was sham worship. Now, they were religious to the core, as I just said. Their lives were marked by the ebb and flow of doing church they loved it when the worship leader brought a strong song. They loved it when Pastor Charles got up there, banged out the keys, and they're like, yeah, that was a good one. They sit back and they judge that one. And they're like, oh, that one wasn't so good, but at least he crushed that one song. They loved to do that. They ate it up when the preacher nailed a sermon. Yeah, Pastor John, man, he really got that one. I'm glad that person over there looked like they were paying attention because they're the ones who really needed that. They didn't mind bringing a sacrifice. They didn't mind giving a tithe. They didn't mind making an offering. They were keen to observe the regular forms of worship. But like so many of us, the religion had very little to do with their daily lives. They showed up, they did their deal Sunday morning, and then the rest of Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, was me, 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 I, 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 me, me, me. You serve me. You exist to orbit my 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 source of gravity. Show up on Sunday morning, tip your hat towards God. You might even through the week talk about God in vague and ambiguous ways. But what Amos is exposing is that their religion that they love to perform, it had very little to absolutely nothing to do with the influence on their day in and day out lives. If you were to pull back the if you were to pull back the thin veneer of their religion, beneath you'd find a failure of true heartfelt worship. From the outside, the veneer, that person looks like they're legit. You pull back that thin veneer, what you would find is a rotten form of half hearted, self centered self love. There was no true heartfelt worship for God. It wasn't meat and potatoes worship. It was cotton candy worship. It was all volume. It was no substance. It was full. It was big. But have you ever seen a cotton candy? I mean, you could have like, right, a 30-foot ball of cotton candy. Huge, big, impressive. You could eat that whole thing. You could probably melt that whole thing in like a cup. There's no substance to it. And that's the kind of worship that described the people of God in Amos' day. And friends, surely some of us are guilty of the same. Moreover, what you would find is a heart in love with self-congratulation seen in the way they would publish their churchy behavior before the eyes of others because this is what they love to do. So when you get down in your copy of scripture and he says, listen, bring this and do that and give this and sacrifice that, publish them. Some of your translations might say boast in them. That's what you love to do. So now he's getting down to the sin behind the sin. The motivation of their heart was the sin that Jesus addresses in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, when their hypocrites stand on the street corner and make big lofty prayers because what do they want? They want the praise of men. They're the ones who sort of limp to the, up to the offering plate, you know, jingling all the change in their pockets so that they, everyone can go, wow, that guy's about to do something really big. They make some big effort to, you know, put all their coins in there because why? Are they giving an offering? yes. Is it going to be used for the service of ministry? Probably. But Jesus says they're getting what they really want, and that is the self-congratulatory worship of men and not the approval of a broken and contrite heart that comes from God. If you wanted to summarize it in a different way, what we could say is this. They were awesome at playing church. They knew they were awesome at playing church and they wanted everyone else to know about it. Have you ever been guilty of just playing church? Running through the motions? Worship of God had just become a show where the sin of self-centeredness scratched their self-congratulatory itch. This is why Amos says to them, guys, why don't you just go up to Bethel? Go on up to Gilgal, but when you do that, what you need to know is you're multiplying sins upon yourselves. To understand those two phrases there, why would going to Bethel and why would going to Gilgal multiply transgressions? It comes down to this. The place of Bethel was the center of worship in the nation of Israel. Gilgal was another city of of like manner. The city of Bethel was associated with the place where Jacob met God in a dream and he called the place the house of God. The city of Gilgal in Joshua chapter 4 and 5. Gilgal is a name that means rolling. And the reason why they named Gilgal, Gilgal, rolling, is because there was a key point in the life of Israel where they met God and submitted to him in obedience. And Moses says, or uh, God says through his word, to his people, because you have obeyed me in this way, my reproach is rolling away from you. And so now what Amos is saying is that is actually being flipped on its head. The city of Gilgal, go there and multiply transgressions. Go to Bethel, multiply those transgressions. Why? The picture is one of Israel coming to the house of God in Bethel only to find God's reproach now rolling onto them Increasing their guilt, multiplying transgression. Why? It's all because of their superficial worship. Their superficial worship. Brothers and sisters, stop. Think about this. The bulk of our lives ebb and flow on gathering and scattering in worship. You're here this morning because you have gathered to worship let amos's warning challenge you to examine your worship life by all outward appearances these folks were firing on all cylinders in regard to worship of god but god's prophet reveals that their entire ritual was an empty and offensive charade sure they'd show up for church at 10 a.m But when they'd show up for church at 10 a.m., they were guilty of going through the motions with hearts far from God. Sure, when Pastor Tom would get up and ask them to give, there was a time of half-hearted giving of a few bucks into the plate. Sure, when Pastor Charles would ask us to pray, there were some barely whispered prayers, barely whispered songs There was a handful of pantomime prayers where we would just utter the words on the screen because that's what somebody told us to do. For these people, the heart of worship was no longer a relentless, self-denying pursuit of glorifying God, but it had degenerated into a self-satisfying denial of God. And friends, surely, 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 some of us here this morning fit into the same category where we just do church because it's just the thing you do. We stand here like this. We stifle a couple of, of yawns. We breathe a couple of words of the hymn. We pantomime the prayers because somebody's asked us to do it. And the whole time what we fail to recognize is that going through these motions of worship is an offensive, offensive charade before the living And holy God. But God we would say. Saved us by his grace. Sent his son to the cross. And died in our place. Recognizing. This is our confession. We recognize that it is us who should be on the cross. It is us who should bear the weight. And the wrath. For the sins we committed against a holy God. And yet we come in here. And we can barely stifle a yawn. As we say we are here. To ruthlessly pursue a living God, with full tilt abandon of the one who saved me by his grace. There's a dissonance there, brothers and sisters, and it is good for us to examine our worshiping hearts. Listen, the hard truth Amos lays at the feet of God's people is that going through the motions of worship when the heart is far from God is deeply offensive to a holy God. But remember The words of Amos shows that God is determined to not leave us alone. Let me say that again. Amos is saying these things. Amos is taking his finger and poking the little thin bubble, the thin veneer of our worship Not because Amos has some axe to grind. It's not because he's got some theological bee in his bonnet. It's not because he just feels like he's better than everyone else. So he's going to go and say and really give them what for. No, Amos is speaking these things on behalf of the living God because the living God is determined to not leave his people in this place. His dogged pursuit of his people is to glorify him and enjoy him forever is because God takes endless pleasure in glorifying himself and sharing his glory with his people. If God is truly the most glorious, treasured thing in the universe, then it would be the height of selfishness on his part to let his creation think that anything less than him could satisfy our hungry souls. So in his kindness and in his love, Yahweh sends prophets and Yahweh sends preachers with a word from the God who cares when the sin of self-centeredness leads his people to a failure of true, heartfelt, wholehearted, 100% full-tilt, abandoned worship of him. He cares. He really does. He absolutely 100% cares, brothers and sisters. Because God is holy and because God is rich with mercy, he continues to reveal himself and thus continues to call his people back to lives of holiness and lives of true, heartfelt worship. He's not doing it because he's a vindictive, malevolent God. He's doing it because he's a gracious, merciful, steadfast, love-keeping God who pursues what he knows is best for us. That's what he's doing. It is grace upon grace upon grace that God sends prophets and preachers with these kinds of words. God is not going to sit back and let his people chase after a lesser glory. He is not going to do it. He loves us. And so he sends people with sharp words at times to poke the thin veneers of self-centered worship, to expose the sham that we are trusting in so that we will have eyes to see, yes, I have been worshiping less. And now, by his grace... I'm going to pursue something surpassing. But as it is said, there are none so blind as those that do not want to see. There's none so blind as those who do not want to see. And if anything could describe the attitude of God's people, it was this phrase. Over and again, God had acted sovereignly over nature. Over and over again, God had acted sovereignly in human history to grab the attention of his unfaithful people, but they just flat out did not want to receive, and it resulted in a failure to repent. That's verses 6 through 11 failure to repent. In Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul tells us that God works everything according to the purpose of his will. There's something tricky about that word, everything. Do you know what's tricky about it? It means everything. So when our scriptures, inspired by the Holy Spirit, tell us that God works everything according to the purpose of his will, it means that nothing absolutely nothing, not even the apparently chance occurrences such as where rain falls or who dies in battle. None of these things are beyond Yahweh. In verses 6 through 11, there is just so much here. I'm going to give us the 50,000 foot view here eight different times. Amos declares that God has been at work among his people With the purpose of awakening them to see their blind rebellion. Notice that first person, I, I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this. I gave you cleanness of all your cities, verse 6. I withheld the rain, and I would send the rain, verse 7. I struck you with blight and mildew, verse 9. I sent among you pestilence. I killed your young men with the sword. I made the stench of your camp go up in your nostrils, verse 11. But notice that five different times he says, in light of this, you did not return to me, 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 you did not return to me. These weren't the chance occurrences of freaks of nature. This is a sovereign God in hot pursuit of his people. God brought famine and a lack of bread to awaken his people, but the indictment was, you guys never got hungry for me, even though I took away your food physically. He brought drought and withheld the rain to stir his people to thirst for him, but the charge was, you never got thirsty for me. Question, when was the last time you hungered and thirsted for God. Like woke up in the morning and said, I am thirsty, not for a cup of water, but I am thirsty for God. Yes, my gut is rumbling from a lack of food, my soul is rumbling because I need more God now. I'm not asking when was the last time you hungered for what God could give to you, some side benefit from God. I'm not asking that. I'm not asking you, have you thirsted in a while for some blessing that he can bring to you? I'm asking, have you simply hungered and thirst after God because God is God and I need God now? When was the last time? When was the last time? When was the last time you sang with the psalmist as a deer pants for the water? My soul pants and thirsts for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God. Brothers and sisters, listen, I don't fully understand it. But I think what Amos is telling us is this. God will work in the physical to get our attention in the spiritual so that we might hunger and thirst for him. Have you ever just had your life completely rocked, knocked, banged, disrupted, shot off course? Lack had come. You thought A was going to happen. Instead, you got B. Did you get some sort of disaster? Did you get some sort of defeat? defeat? Did you get some sort of sickness? Was there some famine of something, some drought of something? And in that moment, you thought, oh, that was just sort of a freak natural thing, and I don't know where that came from, and what's the big deal with that there? Or could it have been the sovereign God in hot pursuit of you, awakening you, grabbing you, seizing you by the the collar of your shirt, saying, listen, man, you're going somewhere you don't want to go. You're going somewhere you don't want to go. You're going somewhere where you don't want to go. Stop Hungering and thirsting for things that will never satisfy hunger and thirst for me. When was the last time you hungered and thirsted for him? God will bring a lack in our lives and he will withhold things from us so that we might hunger and thirst for him. God brought plagues, but they continued to ignore him. God brought defeat in battle and the pestilence of war, but they did not notice him. God even brought... You know what's so amazing about verse 11? Look at verse 11. God brought disaster. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. God brought disaster. And in his extravagant grace, he plucked his people from that disaster as a brand plucked out of the burning. They did not get what they deserved and yet they look at that and go don't care I don't want them." they never, never looked his way it's important to say this that Yahweh does not delight in human self destruction our God does not delight in human self destruction or in his own righteous judgments upon humanity he does not send prophets like Amos to depress us into despair. He does not do that. He doesn't send prophets to depress us into despair with their pronouncements of wrath to come. But rather, God's purposes in doing these things is primarily a purpose of grace. Grace. The sole point of his gracious declarations is to shake us awake by the blasts of his word so that all who hear might prepare to meet their God. But as Amos reveals on the part of God's people, there was a wholesale failure to prepare. And that's what verses 12 and 13 are about. Failure to prepare. Israel had time to prepare. Verses 6 through 7 say there was ample time to prepare. It wasn't like they were doing good, doing good, doing good, doing good, just made like one little trip and God's like, got them. No, they had a repeated pursuit of the things not of God. And God in his patience and kindness had a pursuit had a repeated pursuit of them, wooing them, wooing them, wooing them, wooing them, them, ample time to prepare. But their self-reliance led them to squander every opportunity to prepare. And now, because of their stubborn self-centeredness, the reckoning has come, prepare to meet your God. What Amos reveals is that there is a meeting all men must have. And this is the kind of God you will meet, according to verse 13. He is the mountain maker. He's the wind creator. He is the thought knower. He is the dawn-bringing, mountain-treading God. This is who he is. He's the Lord. The God of angel armies is his name. And so Amos says, look to him and prepare to meet him. The question for you, the question for me is this. Am I prepared to meet my God am I prepared to meet my God friends if you hear nothing else this morning if you wrestle with nothing else if you don't try to think through any other question I've asked you to think through please I beg you I beg you I beg you think on this question wrestle until you get an answer to this question am I prepared to meet my God Listen, when the books are open and the full story is told, you will be found in one of two places. On that day, you will you be found in Christ? Resting entirely on his full atonement for sin and pleading his mercy for your salvation. Or will you hear someone like me beg and plead with you to wrestle with the question, if I go home and I am killed in a car wreck, if I go through this next year but in the beginning of the year I get sick and then I die... If I find myself in a place totally debilitated and taken from this earth and I am all of a sudden standing before God, will I be prepared to meet him? Will you hear these words from someone such as me or will you ignore them and go blithely on, careless of your soul and your eternal destiny, trusting that in that final day the rags of your self-invented righteousness are going to somehow pull you through and make you good with God? Are you prepared to meet your God? See, some of us are here going, I am. I'm in Christ. I am prepared to meet him. I am looking to Christ. He is my savior. He is my only hope. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. When I stand before my God on that day, what I'm going to say is, man, not me, Jesus. I am hidden in him by grace through faith, and you will be met with the smile of God who says, yes, you are prepared. Some of us are going to say, yes, I'm prepared but you're not really prepared. You're going to say, yes, I'm prepared to meet my God, but your trust and your hope is built on other things than Jesus' blood and righteousness. You're very Amos 4 right now. And you're going to find yourself on the receiving end of the words of King Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. There are going to be many people who are going to stand before God. And God is going to ask them on that final judgment day, are you prepared to meet me right now? And they're going to go, Lord, Lord, yes, I am. And Jesus is going to look at them square in the face and say, depart from me. I do not know you. Some of us might even be here this morning and say, I don't give two rips about meeting your God. Your God is not my God. And what you're going to find out, according to Philippians chapter 2, is that you're going to very rudely one day be met with the reality that every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. There are a lot of people who go through this world saying, I don't care about your God, Christian, not realizing that they are a piece of creation made by an awesome, powerful, sovereign, loving creator. And whether they recognize it or not, God is their God. And they're not going to be prepared to meet them. Is there someone that you can go through today and next week in this Advent season, pointing them how to prepare to meet God? Listen, brothers and sisters, I understand this sermon is probably a bit longer than normal, but God was just pressing on me this week that this is of uber importance for our, our Jesus family, okay? Listen, time is short. Time is short. The devil's favorite word is tomorrow. I'll wrestle with them if I'm prepared tomorrow. Guess what? You're going to wake up tomorrow and tomorrow's today and then you're going to go, I'll wrestle with it tomorrow. I'll wrestle with it tomorrow. You are not guaranteed time to prepare tomorrow, which is why the apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, now, right now, is the day of salvation. If the Holy Spirit of the living God is working in you right now as we go into a time of response, I am begging you do not quench the spirits moving do not grieve him by basically extending the middle finger to him and saying I'm going to deal with this later and I don't care what, what kind of wooing that you're doing don't do that prepare to meet your God now as we respond and by his grace may it be said of you on this day I was plucked like a brand out of the burning because of my faith and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you. Oh, how we need you. Truly, you are our one defense. Truly, you, Lord Jesus, are our righteousness. May it be said of many here this morning, watching at home and here physically this morning. May it be true of them that they could confess these things. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood, His righteousness, credited to my account. That is my hope of being prepared to meet my living God. God, would you work on the hearts and the minds of our children this morning? Would you work on the hearts and the minds of friends that we've invited to watch or are invited to come this morning? Would you give us people right now, Holy Spirit, would you just place people on our minds right now to whom we can go to and begin to pray for saying, God, I am positive. They are not prepared to meet you. Will you give me an open door of gospel opportunity to be able to be used as an instrument in your hands to show them the ancient path forward to the Lord Jesus Christ so that on the day that they will meet God they will be prepared because they are hidden in Christ our God and then God would you give us the boldness to walk forward having conversations with these people that you're placing on our hearts and our minds Holy Spirit so that we could see a mighty harvest of salvation come Am I prepared to meet my God? God, turn our eyes to Christ as the only answer to that question. It's in the name of our King, resurrected from the grave, that we pray these things. Amen.